Hi, I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. This week we have Hudson's own Hussein Haqqani. Ambassador Haqqani was the Pakistani ambassador to the United States from 2008 to 2011. Uh, he's uh, a, an expert on Islamic movements. He is the author of numerous books and articles about uh, Islam, Pakistan, and global politics. We got into a discussion with him about uh, Afghanistan, in which he explained some of the major reasons for the American failure. What I really enjoyed about this episode was uh, Ambassador Haqqani's understanding of the intersection of the multiple layers of Afghan politics. Uh, the local, the regional, the international. Uh, nobody understands better than he the connection between tribal politics in uh, Afghanistan, national politics in Pakistan, and the international relations of the of Central Asia. Uh, in particular, it's fascinated to hear him talk about what the rise of the Taliban-Pakistan-China axis means for the United States and the countries of the region like India. Without any further description, let's dive into the episode. Ambassador Haqqani, welcome. Pleasure being here, Mike. You know, just to get us started, why don't you give us your sense of what just happened? What, what went wrong in Afghanistan? Well, Michael, I think that what happened uh, are a set of mistakes, some made in the last 20 days, some made in the last two years, and some made in the last 20 years. So let's start with the mistakes of the last uh, 20 days. Uh, the U.S. completely misread the Taliban. It did not realize that the Taliban's negotiating process in Doha was a sideshow, that the Taliban were preparing to take over Afghanistan militarily and then intended to do what they wanted to do. They did not care much about international recognition. Uh, they had a representative in Doha whose job it was to keep the Americans engaged. And the Americans trusted that process so much that they totally abandoned their allies. Uh, everybody talks about how President Ghani abandoned Kabul and left. But the truth is that the U.S. abandoned the Ghani government earlier. Uh, the Afghan military had been trained to fight with high technology weaponry that the U.S. had provided. But because Afghanistan is a low-tech country, most of the foot soldiers of Afghanistan did not know how to use this equipment or maintain it. And there were 18,000 contractors supporting that effort. All of them were withdrawn. And once they were withdrawn, the military's ability to use the high technology weapons diminished significantly, giving the Taliban an advantage. And the Taliban operated out of their bases, some of which and, and their uh, leadership was in Pakistan. They managed to totally take over Afghanistan. But even when they started taking over Afghanistan, the administration did not relent. Uh, the Biden, uh, President Biden seemed to have made the decision uh, that, you know, I'm out of here, I'm out of here. And so no attention was paid to how the end game was managed. Um, 
the American uh, sort of diplomatic leadership, starting with Secretary of State Blinken, kept saying, we are negotiating uh, with the Taliban. We are uh, going to have some kind of an arrangement with them about a uh, interim government. The Taliban had no intention of doing any of that. The Emir of the Taliban, who was not even mentioned, there was there were people who thought Mullah Baradar, who now has been made only deputy prime minister, that he was the main man, and he wasn't. Uh, he was there just to keep the Americans engaged in talks while the Taliban attained a military victory. Uh, Zalmi Khalilzad, the special envoy appointed by President Trump, retained by President Biden, uh, he kept saying there is no military solution, but the Taliban presented a military solution. Lastly, there was an assumption that working with Pakistan, China and Russia will result in some stable transfer of power in Afghanistan. That wasn't to be. Pakistan, China and Russia had already worked out what they wanted to happen in Afghanistan. China had a side deal with the Taliban, which basically meant that the Taliban will not uh, provide shelter uh, to Islamic, uh, the East Turkestan Islamic movement that operates in Xinjiang. So as long as they hold them back, China is fine. There's and China now, the Taliban say, will be their biggest development partner. There's also talk about giving China the Bagram base. So the U.S. completely misread China's intentions in relation to Afghanistan. And then lastly, there were the mistakes of the last two years. The entire Doha process was a mistake. Uh, the assumption that Afghanistan had no relevance to the uh, great power competition or the uh, peer power competition with China uh, was absolutely wrong. And the assumption that Pakistan could somehow be incentivized into playing a more positive role in Afghanistan was a huge mistake. So these were the mistakes. Then, of course, you and I can go on forever about the mistakes of the last 20 years. Uh, in a nutshell, we created a high-tech army in a low-tech country. We did not pay attention to Afghanistan's tribal politics and tried to just deal with professionals uh, and technocrats and thought that good governance is only uh, professionals running the show. Uh, President Ghani is an anthropologist, Columbia PhD, but that doesn't qualify him for managing the politics of Afghanistan's tribes, which is essential. And, uh, and, and, and we never had a solution for the role of external spoilers in Afghanistan. I'm glad you brought up the last 20 years because it would be a useful place to focus on for our listeners who don't know your career background and academic interests. Can you speak about the broad arc of American involvement and international involvement in Afghanistan over the past 20 years from your perspective? Well, I would say that it should not only be the last 20 years, it should be the last 40 years. The U.S. initially got involved in Afghanistan when the Soviets walked into Afghanistan. And at that time, Zbigniew Brzezinski came up with the brilliant idea uh, that if we could arm and train Islamist uh, Mujahideen, as they were called, uh, to fight the Soviets, we could make Afghanistan the Soviet Union's Vietnam. We could bleed the Soviets. Uh, the problem in doing that was that we actually gave a fillip to Islamist extremism all over the world. There were small groups of Islamist extremists everywhere, and they all concentrated in Afghanistan. They got weapons training. They got training in making IEDs. They got training in creating explosions spontaneously. And out of this was born Al-Qaeda because, again, we did not pay serious attention to what these people 
told themselves and each other. Uh, they always said we are taking American assistance to bring down the Soviet Union, but even eventually we will also bring down the United States. And we thought, ah, that's not important. They probably won't do much to us. They're just a ragtag bunch that we have trained and equipped and armed and financed. Well, that was not necessarily true. Al-Qaeda was born. As far as the Mujahideen are concerned, they started fighting among themselves. But in 1989, when the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan, there was an assumption in Washington that Afghanistan stopped being relevant to, uh, to, to America. So the U.S. did not even have a, uh, a, a, a person in charge for Afghanistan at either the CIA or at the State Department on the day 9-11 happened. Because everybody was thinking this is a remote sideshow. It's a small country with a 3 billion GDP, with a bunch of mullahs running it. The Taliban had emerged a few years before 9-11 out of the mess that was the Afghan civil war. These were students from madrasas, which is religious seminaries, on primarily the Pakistani side of the Pakistan-Afghan border. And they uh, rose to power with Pakistan's support uh, with the slogan that we will bring order. But the order they brought, of course, was a very medieval order, as you remember. And, and yet, people condemned it. Nobody in the world recognized the Taliban regime except Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. And no one had diplomatic relations with them except Pakistan. But, but their real concern to America was that Osama bin Laden had relocated to Afghanistan and he had created a network of global jihadi terrorists called Al-Qaeda, which literally means the base. Only after 9-11 did it occur to senior American leaders that we need to do something about the very concept of radical Islamist terrorism rather than just retaliate after each attack on ourselves. These Al-Qaeda had been involved in attacks on the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. We, they had been involved in attacking the USS Cole. Uh, they had been responsible for several aborted plans as well. But nine and, and an earlier attack on the World Trade Center, but 9-11 was a huge jolt. It was an attack on the American mainland and it required a response. So that response included going into Afghanistan and toppling the Taliban, except we toppled the Taliban from power. And in typical fashion, exactly what happened this time, once the people saw that there was momentum for the Northern Alliance, which was being backed by America, uh, the Taliban soldiers just melted into the countryside. Just like right now, if you see, when the Taliban momentum increased, the Afghan army just melted into the countryside. They just decided that they will not put up a resistance because Afghans have a whole history and culture of uh, not fighting to the last man. They have a saying that there is always another battle. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, we had Afghanistan in our hands now, and we had to decide what to do with it. The easy way out would have been to create a government that had all the major political and tribal factions. Uh, we, we created a government. We took someone who was based in America at that time, Hamid Karzai. We took him back. We made him the president. Uh, but then uh, I guess that uh, uh, various interests in America started taking interest in Afghanistan. Let me jump in there and pull on a thread that you uh, mentioned a minute ago, which is that America never understood the tribal politics in Afghanistan. 
and I, I think maybe a way in to this issue is through Karzai. Because I'm, you know, I understand that Karzai, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's still in Kabul now. And something that I don't understand, and maybe you can enlighten us here, is how is it that Karzai, who was backed so heavily by the United States, you think that he, you think that he would be a target for the Taliban, and yet there he is in Kabul now. I sense that there's a tribal, there's a tribal element here that I that I don't understand. Can can you explain this yeah, to us? Absolutely. So Afghans have a culture, tribal culture, in which essentially, if a leader of the tribe or a significant member of the tribe is targeted, then uh, the tribe avenges that uh, insult to the honor of the tribe. Uh, and Karzai has tribal following in Uruzgan, an important area in Afghanistan. That's why he was able to be a more successful political leader. Uh, Ghani, on the other hand, is a technocrat without the stature of a tribal leader, of, 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 of having a big tribal following. Uh, just to give you an idea, Karzai's father was a minister under the monarchy that existed in Afghanistan until 1973. So they have roots in the tribe. Now, he will eventually have to leave Afghanistan because uh, because he and the Taliban do not see eye to eye. And if he speaks up too much, then the Taliban are definitely going to try and silence him. But for the moment, here's the Taliban's choice. Do we want to take on this man and turn his entire tribe into our enemies, including some people who are members of the Taliban? Because um, uh, there are multiple layers, your loyalty to your belief, which is what the Taliban espoused, but then there is the loyalty to your tribe, then there's the loyalty to your clan. And and, and so uh, people like Karzai, pe other people who have local and tribal following, they are relatively better and more protected than somebody who has none of that. Uh, the Americans never understood that cultural dimension. There was a tendency to think that, you know, uh, a president is a president is a president. Uh, a minister is a minister is a minister. Not realizing that a president with tribal following and a president without tribal following, a minister with tribal following and a minister without tribal following are different. And Karzai, of course, managed tribal relations as well. He would occasionally issue statements against the United States, not because he was anti-American, but he would, because if his, if, if a certain tribe's members had been killed by mistake uh, as, uh, in, in an airstrike, then he had to speak up for that tribe to make them think that he was on their side. American diplomats took it very simplistically. They did not understand that they were dealing with a country. On the one hand, we always recount how Afghanistan is now much more literate. But we forget that what that means is that the starting point when we arrived there, it wasn't a very literate country. It did not have uh, uh, much internal connectivity uh, and, and, and modernity. So in 20 years, we've brought a lot of modernity, but that's still an overlay on a culture that is quite old. And very frankly, it is very similar to the mistake that was made in Iraq when we did not understand that an Iraqi is an Iraqi is an Iraqi is a mistake, that Iraq actually has Arab Shias, it has Arab Sunnis, and then it has Kurds, and all of them have different interests, and then within them, they have different factions. And, and the 
the the logical way of dealing with it would have been to have people who had an understanding of all that uh, in the at least in the room uh, where decisions were made uh, so that they could advise the us government on that what ended up happening especially under the obama administration you remember they had two surges one was the military surge they took the troops to 100000 but they made a mistake in announcing the date of withdrawal along with the surge which basically meant the taliban just knew how long they have to wait out the americans the taliban had a saying that americans have watches we have the time and that's exactly what happened so the way america could have succeeded was by in fact america would have left earlier if america had never shown interest in leaving and then left because when you keep saying i'm leaving the other side doesn't know how long you are there for your allies are already worried about okay when they leave what will happen to me so let me cut deals on the side that uh, that weakens the, the the ability to fight and your enemies know how, just how long to wait but the other surge that uh, president obama brought about was the civilian surge which basically meant you know how everybody talks about the military industrial complex i agree that there is a military industrial complex but there is another complex and that is i think the ngo complex Uh, yeah. all these various non governmental organizations with uh, uh, sort of very good and noble motives but as long as they are being funded from the us taxpayers account they were all happy to go to afghanistan so we had all kinds of ngos working in afghanistan the money just kept on piling in terms of what was being spent on afghanistan uh, but that also created local level disruptions uh, increased our presence and diminished the 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 understanding of afghan politics because now we had a for example a special interest ngo from the us or canada or 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 germany connecting with afghans who thought like americans and worked with the americans totally blinding the us to afghans who did not think like americans right and 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 that, therefore what was happening in society what was happening in the politics of afghanistan was just not understood and in some cases some of our actions at the grassroots level may actually have um, shall we say annoyed the local populace similarly america its own Amer- america's own experience started out but within about 20 30 years of our uh, of our early history we ended up with political parties and factions it's the natural process in a democracy now afghanistan was a fledgling democracy but we actually discouraged the uh, the, the, the formation of political parties along ethnic and tribal lines and we wanted everybody to create non ethnic and non tribal po- uh, political parties the truth is that doesn't work even here i mean uh, people uh, of only one set of values join together in a political party and then they negotiate with one another if they negotiate with one another none of that was taken into account so i'm sorry i belabored this point but i think the listeners may not understand the granular uh, sort of detail of afghanistan's tribal and political culture that we simply dropped the ball on something i'm wondering about is going back to your history of the us engagement of with Afghanistan in the 1980s you really talk about how the US took the eye off the ball because the thought was post 1990 this isn't particularly relevant 
it seems as if the public discourse is moving that direction right now. So to what degree do you think we are or aren't repeating history? Are we going to have to re-engage with the country in the, over the next few years or so? How do you think about this? Well, I think we will have to re-engage. Look, a moderate, consistent level of engagement is much better than these highs and lows. And I think that that is, that is something that American foreign policy needs to adjust all over. I mean, we have these attitudes where we say, you know, let's go gung-ho. Look, foreign policy is not about, just about whom to bomb, whom to buy, and whom to take out to lunch. There is much more to foreign policy. You, have, you can sometimes have engagement without giving anything. You can sometimes uh, have a, a, a sort of a, a deterrence that is not necessarily large number of troops and, and, and a huge military presence. Uh, but right now, for example, I saw a statement only yesterday from the State Department uh, to the effect that, um, well, we don't know what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, and basically what they're saying is we just have no visibility because we have no presence. That's something that should have been thought about. I mean, why do you go from a almost $1 billion embassy to nothing? Uh, why can't you find a more moderate middle-of-the-road presence whereby you are at least well-informed? The same goes for intelligence operations, huge intelligence center, uh, big enough for the Taliban and the Mujahideen, uh, quote-unquote Mujahideen of Al-Qaeda to target. If you remember, there was an attack on it in, in, in Host when they created a defector uh, whom everybody thought, ah, we are about to have a high-level defector and this guy shows up in a, with a car bomb and they didn't check him because they thought he's defecting to us, so let's not insult him by checking him or running security checks on him and he brings the car in and he blows up and several uh, uh, intelligence uh, professionals died in that process. So, I mean, we, we, our choices are not zero and hundred. There's a lot of digits in between that we could have actually adopted. And I think we will eventually have to get back involved. Will we have learned the lesson that this time, let's not go from zero to hundred and settle for something that is sustainable. Uh, many of us used to say that America needs to have a strategy for sustained and sustainable involvement in Afghanistan. Well, we did not have it sustained involvement because we, we we started saying after about five years, oh God, when are we going to get out? When are we going to get out? And that continued for 15 years. And now we are out after 20 years. And then as far as sustainable is concerned, that became very obvious. We created a very expensive military, but that expensive military was not necessarily the sustainable military that would have been more practical uh, for the ground. And lastly, the political order that we created also was not sustainable. Remember, there was a time when everybody used to say, oh, these horrible warlords in Afghanistan, how can America support them? Well, guess what? These warlords were essentially local political leaders. Uh, they were they were they were political bosses in their areas, and yes, they were warlords because there was war. So in a war kind of situation, you end up having armed people in your tribe, in your family, in your in your political support base. Uh, by totally marginalizing them, we actually removed one layer of resistance to the Taliban. I think you just answered a big question I have in my mind, uh, which is. 
where uh, you know where are our lo- warlords? So let me let me put it to you like this: uh, the Taliban is now claiming that they have conquered the Panjshir Valley. I I don't know if they have or not, but they're claiming they have. Uh, at at any rate, they are obviously in control of much more of Afghanistan than they ever were before we went in. Uh, and you you mentioned before that that we we basically when, when we came in we basically built up the northern alliance you know, the that the 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 northern um, the alliance of uh, warlords in the north that was opposed to the Taliban, and I just assumed when uh, when we pulled out when 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 I heard the news that we were pulling out that it would be very hard for the Taliban to take over the whole country. So I assume that, that at the very least, the uh, Kabul and the North would remain independent of the Taliban. And, uh, and then a lot of experts were also telling us that the, that the provincial capitals would remain um, independent of the Taliban. And, and yet n- uh, that didn't happen. As you mentioned before, all of the opposition just melted melted away. And how, how do you explain that process? How come there isn't a reconstitution of the Northern Alliance right now? So two things. Uh, one is, of course, that the Taliban bought out local commanders. I mean, once you are besieging a city, it's very easy to send a message to the commander saying, you, your family, everybody will be safe from reprisals. And by the way, here's $10,000 uh, to get your family uh, on its way. And so take this or we conquer you and we kill all of you and, and, and then we chase your family members and kill them as well. And a lot of local people made those kind of local deals. You've heard the word local deals. A lot of local deals were conducted. But the other bigger picture question, as I say, there are mistakes of the last two years, 20 days and 20 years. The 20-year mistake is that we, look, we must promote American values. I'm, I'm a very strong believer in, in, in American values as universal values. However, all values, you know, have a, 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 a local sort of color. American values in the South are slightly different from American values in the Northeast. American values in the rural areas are slightly different from those in the big cities. You can't have a minority of uh, the intelligentsia dictating the values to everyone. But that's what happened. So what we did was we basically disabled most of the uh, warlords and their militias. And the idea was that Afghanistan being a, a country should have a national military. And so therefore, instead, if we had allowed all of them to have their an Uzbek militia, uh, led by uh, uh, Abdul Rashid Dostam, a Tajik militia led by the Masood family, uh, a uh, Herati militia led by Ismail Khan. Uh, a, you know, if we had allowed that to happen, uh, then what we would have had was a second tier of defense other than the Afghan National Army. And uh, secondly, even the Afghan National Army, it's, in, it's very interesting. We insisted on creating um, uh, uh, units that were integrated. Uh, now, very frankly, when the British were in the subcontinent, it's very interesting that the British, even in India, which they r- ruled for 20, 200 years, they had army units that were ethnically homogenous. So you have the Punjab regiment, 
the Madras Rifles, the, uh, the Frontier Force, so that people from that area feel comfortable with one another, with officers who are uh, English or sometimes from other ethnicities, but that's about it. And so they, they could work together and there was greater esprit de corps. Lastly, no military, Michael, can have generals within eight to 10 years. It takes about 28 to 30 years for a lieutenant to become a general in the US military. In no country that I have checked, can you have a lieutenant become a general in less than 20, 25 years? Now, what we did in Afghanistan was we were trying to do everything on the quick. Uh, trainers would come on one-year rotations. You do understand that in a military, there is a bond between the trainer and the trainee. And in the US military, the same sergeant remains uh, uh, the sergeant of training for years so that there are young men who keep coming and going. But we kept rotating because after all, we were trying to make an American style army for Afghanistan rather than an Afghan army for Afghanistan. I want to take a step back to your background at Hudson and talk about the implications for South Asia and Central Asia. So the broader geostrategic picture, because that's an area of discussion. It feels like there's been a significant amount of underplaying around. We'd just love to hear your broad thoughts about how this should reprioritize our thinking. First of all, uh, the Taliban are very closely connected to Pakistan. Uh, the Taliban are Pashtun. The Pashtun overlap both Pakistan and Afghanistan ethnically. The border between Pakistan and Afghanistan is essentially what was known as the Durand Line that was drawn in 1893 by a British officer. They're the same people. There are more Pashtuns in Pakistan than in Afghanistan now. Pakistan has always feared that India would stoke irredentist sentiment among Pakistani Pashtuns and the Pakistani Baloch who would want to break away from Pakistan. These groups were not very enthusiastic about the idea of Pakistan in the first place. Pakistan has a very strong state, very strong military, but it does not have a strong sense of nationhood so far. Afghans, on the other hand, have had a strong sense of nationhood despite their tribalism. They've been a country for more than 250 years. Um, yet, Yet, they do not have a strong state and military. So Pakistan has been trying to redress that balance and make sure that the Pashtun nationalism and Baluch nationalism are diluted with Islamism. And that's why they've supported the Taliban for so long. So Pakistan will continue to remain involved in Afghanistan. It's not, it's not a coincidence that the head of the Pakistani ISI was in Kabul two days before the formation of the government. He kind of signed off on the cabinet. Uh, and so, so, so they remain their big, the big satraps. Now, Pakistan on the... The, uh, the ISI being the Pakistani intelligence Yes, service. Pakistani intelligence service, inter-services intelligence. Uh, the Pakistan, Pakistan now has... So, 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 so in a way, the Taliban, though they are very independent and they will act independently in certain areas, they will also be very dependent on Pakistan. On the other hand, Pakistan is very dependent on China. And a lot of people in Washington, D.C. want to somehow outbid China for Pakistan's loyalty and support. I sometimes wonder how that will ever play out. There's 150,000 Pakistani students in America, uh, in China, only 7,000 in America. Uh, more Pakistani military equipment now comes from China than it does come from, from the United States. More Pakistani connections, trade, etc., are with China than with the U.S. So China will be a big gainer. And the assumptions that we will, the U.S. will work with China to moderate the Taliban, moderate the Pakistanis, I think those assumptions 
will prove wrong over time. What will happen is China will emerge the bigger, more dominant player in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. How much will the the dominant position of China in Afghanistan help China in uh, uh, in the wider region with Central Asia, Uzbekistan, and India? Well, China has always used Pakistan as a secondary deterrent to India. Uh, because India has more troops on the Pakistan border than it does on the China border, even though the border is almost the same size, same length. Um, And while America is trying to draw India into the quad, the quad being the four countries that will resist China in the Indo-Pacific, that is India, Australia, Japan, and the US. And it's a maritime project. India is more concerned about its land border where the Chinese keep making incursions and might actually take over more territory in the Himalayas from, from, from India. India is also worried about the threat of terrorism. Uh, there is a restive Muslim majority area in Afghanistan uh, and under Indian control right now called uh, uh, Jammu and Kashmir, over which Pakistan and India have fought three wars. So they think, the Indians think, that China and Pakistan together will create more problems for India. The Central Asian republics will be worried. Uh, There is an Islamic movement of Uzbekistan closely tied to Al-Qaeda that has always operated out of Afghanistan. Uh, And uh, several of its leaders were sent to Guantanamo when they were found after 9-11. Well, that movement is still very much in there. It will threaten uh, uh, Uzbekistan, which is a very secular, some would argue Soviet-style state still, uh, but has a Muslim population, large Muslim population. Tajikistan, which had a civil war between, between Islamists and the uh, state not long ago, uh, that, that will be another area where there will be, uh, there will be issues. Um, and so China and Pakistan are hoping that because of Afghanistan, they will have greater influence in Central Asia. China already has a, a BRI-related, not BRI-integrated, but BRI-related. BRI is the Belt and Road Initiative of China, which is this whole network of ro- railroads and 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 uh, and highways that will connect China to countries in the region. They have something called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. They are hoping to extend it to Afghanistan and from there extend it into Central Asia. Uh, if all of that happens, uh, then the U.S. is certainly out of the game in that particular geographic area because we don't have a military base there, we don't have an intelligence base there, uh, we don't have a huge, uh, we won't have a huge diplomatic presence in Afghanistan for the foreseeable future because of many, many reasons. And uh, projecting power there would be difficult. The distance from the Gulf to Afghanistan and and, and the Central Asian republics is much farther. Either we get somebody in Central Asia to grant us a military base military or intelligence space, or we are stuck with a situation in which there's a large chunk of uh, Eurasia where the U.S. does not have the kind of footprint that China ends up having. It's hard to imagine that anybody in Central Asia in the current context would be reaching out to the United States um, uh, for a, uh, to be the host of a, milit- of a major military and intelligence base when it's going to incur the ire of the Chinese uh, and of the Russians as well. Absolutely. Um, and, 
and uh, uh, and and we're showing no signs of resolve in the in the region. Absolutely. I mean, uh, look, this attitude that we have shown, which is we are out of here, we are out of here, uh, uh, which is President Biden's uh, sort of uh, 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 default position, it seems, because he keeps arguing about how we couldn't change Afghanistan and how we shouldn't have done nation building. No one, look. If your objection was to massive no, no, nation building, you could have diminished that no, nation building project and yet kept a military presence. But now you have left a modern airbase in the form of Bagram, for example, which the Chinese are eyeing. So can you imagine if the, if the Taliban lease the Bagram airbase to the Chinese? Then China has a huge military presence in Central Asia, which will help it maintain security even in, in, in Xinjiang because they could fly drones and do exactly what we did, which is make sure that there is no border crossing from the Muslim areas of Tajikistan, Pakistan and Afghanistan into Xinjiang. So so, so they would say we will do counterterrorism based in Bagram, uh, the reverse of what, uh, uh, or the, uh, you know, exactly what we were doing. And so... Uh, if China has a base there, then the Central Asians would say, "Do we want to take on that?" Uh, uh, yeah. And 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 Russia, of course, uh, uh, helped and uh, got in uh, was was part of the whole Taliban dialogue in uh, ensuring that America left Afghanistan. But there were people who kept warning that Afghanistan is part of the peer competition, but there there was a dismissiveness almost identical to the dismissiveness we saw from 1989 to 2001 that you know afghanistan is just this remote country and it does not affect us uh, reminds me of president reagan taking action in little granada if anybody remembers 1983 and the reason was that in 1971 the hostage cri iran hostage crisis uh, the lack of resolve of uh, the Carter administration had given a signal to the world that America had kind of lost its resolve. And so when you went back to showing resolve, you had to pay attention even to a small place like Grenada, which in strategic terms really didn't mean much for the United States. The U.S. never took interest in it before, has never taken interest in it since, except perhaps for a few tourists flying there every now and then for a beach vacation. So sometimes the remoteness of a place is no, no argument for ignoring it. Its significance has to be seen in the global context. And the global context is uh, that America has to make a decision. Are we going to be a global leader or are we not? And anybody who says that we need to ignore this and we need to ignore that because it's too remote basically is making an argument for isolationism, however much they might pretend that they are just being realists. Very well said. What are you focusing on now? Where should listeners look to your work at Hudson and beyond, obviously, to get a deeper look in your thoughts on these topics? Well, thank you for saying that. I have been a consistent critic of the Doha peace process. Uh, I warned uh, in, in an op-ed in the New York Times titled Don't Talk to the Taliban uh, many years ago, then uh, said uh, that the Taliban are smelling blood. It was in the Wall Street Journal. So, so, so. I kind of warned about all of this. Now my focus at least is on the impact of what the, the Taliban 
supporters and other radical Islamists see as a great victory on the revival of Islamic radicalism. Because mm-hmm. I think that is coming next. I had done an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal several a few years ago titled Jihad 3.0. And I think Jihad 3.0 is coming. Uh, we will see that there will be a resumption of, uh, of, of, of activity by several radical Islamist groups uh, who will focus on Afghanistan. So I'm watching that. I will be working on that intensively, looking for signs of who's reviving, who's coming, who's going. I will also be looking at Afghan politics as it emerges because there will be factions in Taliban. And very frankly, if, uh, yes, the Americans made a mistake in not understanding the tribal nature of Afghanistan, but the Taliban have also made a mistake in forming a government that is primarily Pashtun, exclusively Taliban, that will not necessarily be able to keep the country together. So we will have some kind of insurgency, some kind of resistance. Women will definitely rise up. They are already rising up. Uh, How that plays out, that will be my focus. And lastly, I will be watching the moves of China and Russia in Afghanistan and in the region and how that affects Pakistan, India and the India-Pakistan equation. Let, let, let me just ask you uh, about that last point. I, I, I think it's a really important one. Um, and uh, I don't want to close out the episode without hearing about it. Let's, um, let's look at it from the Indian point of view, as you understand it. Uh, because if, if China and Pakistan are now working closely in supporting the Taliban, and historically, the Pakistanis have used uh, their relationship with the Taliban in order to build up uh, jihadi groups that could be used in Kashmir and in order to put pressure on the Indians. The, the Indians must be, um, if not panicked, at least deeply alarmed by what they're seeing. So uh, w- if you're India and you see the United States leave, the rise of a, a, a Pakistani Chinese Taliban axis, the threat of uh, of a resurgence of uh, uh, of jihadi organizations. How do you respond to this? What do you do? Well, I think India is already working on how to make itself more secure at home. Homeland security part component is what they are working on. They will also try and work. Uh, they, they are also trying to talk to the Taliban and see if they can restore their presence in in India. The Taliban say they like the idea of Indian development assistance because India has spent about $3 billion in development assistance in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, The Taliban will need experts to keep the lights on because they don't know how to do it. So they could uh, they could look to India for that. And if that happens, India will restore its presence there. But you must also remember that there is deep support for India and 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 fascination with India among Afghans. And uh, and so India will start rebuilding those connections. Uh, I don't think that uh, this is a final this is a decisive victory, but not a final victory for Pakistan uh, uh, over India in terms of influence in Afghanistan. And. I think India will draw closer to the United States uh, in its efforts to try and resist uh, China. There is a point of view in India that maybe we need to cut a deal with China, but then they should realize and hopefully will realize that cutting a deal with the Chinese is not that easy. The Chinese and the Taliban have one thing in common. 
in every negotiation and deal they are very specific and the words they use have very specific meaning to them just like the taliban in their doha agreement said we will not let our territory be used for attacks on any country they are not saying we will not let anybody organize or have refuge in our country that is responsible for terrorist attacks anywhere in the world so similarly the chinese also do very specific kind of assurances and agreements and so if the indians uh, and the indians know china very well so if they fall for it uh, it would be a disaster for them i think that they will draw closer to the united states in resisting the influence of china and of Pakistan. Sana Khani, thank you so much for joining us on Counterbalance. Such a pleasure. Thank you. That's all we have here. Huge thank you to everyone for tuning in. Huge thank you to Mike and a huge thank you to Hudson Institute for supporting our work. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.